0: If you ever wonder what Genesis does, like what does Genesis do? It's about the beginning, it starts everything, but what's it doing theologically and practically? What Genesis does is it lays a groundwork for you and I to understand not only the rest of Scripture by, so it's, it's kind of that intro or first things where you and I can look back and it makes sense of everything else as we go through it, but also for, for all of us, it also helps us to understand the day that we live in. And in many ways, the very beginning of Genesis is a stark contrast to today. You you look at this and you go, that seems great, but I have to live around all of this. Today, I want your attention to be brought just to one part of this amazing passage of chapter 1. And what God intends for us to have with with this scripture, this section of scripture, is, is a sufficient awareness of not only who he is, but how he originally made man to be. I want to bring your attention to the second part of the sixth day, where I want us to zoom in on a particular moment within that day. We we believe that God created everything within six days, and here it seems like he intentionally, Moses, the writer of this text, intentionally stretches this day out. For us, to focus on, or for us to focus on it. Every one of you should know a little bit about Christian doctrine if you've been a believer for any period of time. And, and there's a claim within everyday Christian doctrine that man is made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. But I think for a lot of us, we have no idea what that means. Like, What does it mean to be made in the image of God versus something else or someone else? And so today I want us to look at Genesis 1, and particularly uh, alongside Genesis 1, four Old Testament passages that speak about man as, a cre- as, as created in God's image, in order that we may have a more specific, a more definite, a more biblically rounded understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, I'll tell you these, these passages. Genesis 1, verses 24 through 31. Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3. Genesis 9, verse 6, and within its context. And then Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. If you didn't write those down, that's okay. We'll get to them later within the sermon. But verse 27 here might, might stick out to you uh, as, as like you might be driving in your neighborhood and you notice something is there that you may think, that, that strikes me as odd. Maybe you drive through your neighborhood and it's July and they still have Christmas lights up. You know, they might even turn them on at night and you go, there's something to that. Either they're crazy or they're wanting someone's attention, or maybe they're just more joyful or happy than I am, but something sticks out there. I think when you and I read the Bible, we should just understand that there are basic things within the context of Scripture that should bring our awareness that something different is happening there. If you just look at the Bible in front of you, something sticks out about verse 27. And you don't have to have a PhD in bibliology to know that something different is going on. All of us, I would imagine, there may be some of you who are not the case, but all of us didn't love, didn't love one subject in particular in junior high or high school, and that was English. Why? Because within English, you have to learn poetry. And the amazing thing about poetry is no one knows what any poem is about, yet we're supposed to be confidently aware of what a poem is about. So you and I might be reading this passage, 26 or 25, 24, 25, 26, and then 27 hits, and all of a sudden it's indented, which may bring hair up on the back of your neck, and you go, oh no, a poem. Something is happening here intentionally that Moses wants us to stop and meditate on And this will stretch us completely. Now, if you're using a New American Standard or a New King James or just a Bible that goes verse by verse in its context, this may not stick out to you. But for the rest of us, we see something indented. Something jumps off the page. For the very first time in your Bibles, we have a tiny little Hebrew poem. And everything else in Genesis 1 is a narrative or in the form of a story. And then in verse 27, the author switches to poetry. Like maybe you're watching a movie and all of a sudden one of the main characters busts out in song. You're supposed to pay attention to that. He's bringing awareness or she's bringing awareness of something that can only be told to you in poetic form. And so here we have a broken pattern. And what Moses does is he wants so badly for us to see uh, this particular thing, and to the point where he busts out in a poem for it. And in fact, the way that the first five books of the Bible are arranged—that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible—there there are major poems that occur within the layout of those first five books. And that, for us, is is almost like uh, coat hangers or hat hangers within the scriptures that go, okay, why did all of a sudden they bust out in poetry right there? Maybe there's something to that. And for us this morning, I want us to zoom in as much as we possibly can on this first poem given to us in the scriptures. Moses is pulling all kinds of uh, uh, almost liturgical and linguistic tricks out of his bag to get you and I to stop and to stare at the creation of man as being so different than anything else. What is it about man and woman that sets them apart from everything else that God has created? Now, let's be honest. There are some remarkable things that were created in the beginning. Let's think about dinosaurs. Let's think about planets. And then we have something that is more beautiful and majestic, and also we'll see holy, that is man and woman. So he wants us to zoom in on that, and I think it will, it will embolden us as we walk um, and follow Christ, knowing that we have been made distinct from everything else. Now, Genesis wants us to be shocked by these phrases. Genesis wants us uh, to be a little bit nervous at this assertion. So let me, ju- let me suggest, and this will serve as the outline uh, for the remainder of the sermon, I want to suggest five things of what it means to be made in the image of God. Five things of what it means to be made in the image of God. And this passage will set the agenda for us this morning. The first thing, five things, wasn't mean to be made in the image of God. Number one, mankind was made distinct by God. Mankind was made distinct by God. First of all, it's clear in Genesis 1, verses 24 and 25 that to be made in the image of God is to be distinct from animal creation. So we are different from animals. Man is distinct from animal creation. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. And 25, it says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. That the repetition here is on purpose of what Moses is wanting to notice. Note the five times in two verses that we are told beasts of the earth are made how? After their kind. After their kind. After their kind. But in Genesis one twenty-six and one twenty-seven, we are told that man was made in our image. According to our likeness, that in his own image and in the image of God, he was created. You notice the the difference there. That is not an accident. Moses is doing that on purpose. Now, what is Moses trying to tell you and me? He's telling us that mankind is unique. Man is not just another animal, but actually a higher creation in God's eyes. Man is of entirely different genus than animals. I just said a word that. You might remember from science, genus, you know, kings play chess on fat green stools, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. I remembered that last night, and I felt pretty good about myself when I did that. Mankind is entirely different than any other animals, according to the animal kingdom. There are people who think that we're just one of the other animals, and according to the scriptures, that is not true, and it has an amazing amount of implications for us. It's not just... That man was made in the image of God. It's not just that he's smarter than other animals. It's not just that he grew legs that can outrun a fish. It's not just that he is an entire, entirely different kind. He's not just more highly developed or nuanced. He's not formed from anything else to to survive in a battle of what is present, but he is of a completely different kind because he is uniquely made unlike anything else in the image of God. Now, today it's common for human anthropologists to refer to man as a human animal, human hyphen animal. Now, from Moses' perspective, that is a conflict in terms. It is a conflict in logic. Mankind is more than animal. We are other than animal. We are human. As Nigel Cameron said it in the most shocking of ways, what he said was true. We are in the genus of God. We are like him. And that's precisely what Moses wants us to see here in Genesis 1. Now, now, just for a moment, what makes a tree different than a tiger? What makes you different from a sidewalk? What makes you have a different value than something else that you can see out there? Friend, I wonder if you think of yourself time and time again as actually lower than those things, as, as low as all the other five and a half days of creation before you. Rocks, crash, trees, die, but God made you distinct. Now, we don't often talk, I don't often talk like this, but I just want to say you are actually special. We'll get to the sin part later, but you are unique and special in God's eyes. Now, this has so many implications for us on how we treat one another, on how we glorify God by recognizing that he's just given us another child or another family member or another friend. He's he's given us another image-bearer for us to enjoy way more than you might have a plant in a pot in your front yard. As beautiful as they are, there is something precious and glorious about how God has made mankind distinct from everything else. So what, what makes you made in the image of God? Well, first, you're distinct. Second, mankind was made to rule... God's creation. Not only were we made unique, but we're made to rule God's creation. Second thing we see about the image of God is that man is awarded the capacity to rule. He has been bestowed almost a crown of authority on earth. And in fact, we're given the command to rule creation. Man is endowed with a capacity for and the responsibility of dominion and rule. Look at verse 26 and 28 of the passage. 26, it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And verse 28, And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice how in such close proximity to the assertion that you and I were made in the image of God, that's in verse 27. Look at at what's around verse 27, obviously, verse 26, and then verse 28. But notice how they correlate with each other. Notice notice how commands are given in one place and in the other. His image and his likeness. God says, let them rule. Now, what does God do? Well, you've already learned from Genesis 1-1. Uh, through verse 25, that it's ultimately God who is in charge. But if you wanted to sum up the theme of all of Genesis 1, it really is God rules, or God is sovereign, or the glorious God who created everything is fully in charge. And as he creates, he rules, and as he rules over the earth and rules over the sky, he rules over the sea, he rules over the animals, God rules. And immediately after we're told that man is created in his image, what are the first words? Let them have dominion. So man is given the capacity for dominion, and that, of course, means that he is able to think, that he's able to act morally, that he's able to act with righteousness, that he, in that aspect of God's image, is being stressed in the divine command that is given to Adam in Genesis 1, verse 28. In in verse 28 that I just read, God blesses man right there, and God says to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it or rule over it. And then this passage again, man's capacity and responsibility to rule is heightened. It's emphasized. It's a declaration. And it's continued through verses 29 and 30. And it's repeated again in Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, where this passage is reiterated in the same time of Noah. That's precisely what's celebrated in Psalm chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 8. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, open it to the middle and turn a little bit left. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, that same language, I just kind of blew through it, that same language in Genesis 1, 28 is repeated in Genesis chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, but I want our attention to be on Psalm 8 here and what God has given man the opportunity to do. Psalm chapter 8, look at verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of God that you care for him? Within the context here, you, you understand what the psalmist is doing in verses 3 and 4. He's saying, when you look at the world around us, and any of us do this anytime we go outside, you look at the world around us and you go, it is so big. It is so powerful. It is so intrinsic. Whether you are at the beach and the waves are crashing against you, whether you, in the, whether you are at the mountains hoping that they don't fall down on you, you are amazed at the power and beauty that is above you and below you. But man, man is tiny in comparison of this. And it's here that we, in the context of this huge universe, are called by God to take a deep breath And then look at verses 5 through 8. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, which is, just to be clear, very high. Crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him, man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Mankind is given authority and charged to rule and have dominion over everything that God has created. You see what he's doing. He says, isn't it amazing that God in his grace in Genesis 1 gave us the responsibility to rule over all of that? Man is given the capacity and the command to rule. And when you think about that, what man has been handed, and the responsibility to rule on the earth, you also need to understand and hear the word subdue. Subdue the word subdue the earth. We're not just given the command to have dominion over the earth, but also to subdue the earth or conquer the earth is another way that that could be translated. Every word here matters, and I want us to pay careful attention to it. So I just want to isolate three phrases here. First one is have dominion. It's one Hebrew word, but have dominion. When we think about God has given us the command to rule over all things, he does this using two amazing phrases, and the first one is, have dominion. God says, let them have dominion. The language that you may glaze over, this language here, is actually royal language. This is kingly language. Whenever you hear someone have say, I want to have, have dominion over everything in front of them, they're acting like a king, or at least they think they're like a king. And elsewhere, when this language is used throughout the Old Testament, it's only being used when exercised by a king in the Old Testament. So here we see that God is not simply assigning tasks to man. He's he's crowning man. He's commissioning man, like he would commission a prince. And in Adam, he very much is commissioning a prince. Now later in chapter 2, we'll see later in the weeks to come that Adam begins naming animals just like God previously in chapter 1 was naming parts of his creation, saying, this is the sun. And then Adam later, as his vice-regent or prince over all the earth, is naming a thing like a cow. So have dominion. It helps us understand what it means to rule. The second phrase or second word is subdue. Now, when you think of, I don't know what you think of when you think of subdue the earth. I kind of tend to go towards more agricultural language. And by By me thinking agriculturally, I only think of using a a self-propelled push mower. Right, That's That's as agriculture as I get. So I think about subduing the front yard. I own that thing. I cultivate that thing. But that's not actually how Moses is using this word. Subdue is actually military language. Used elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's used in times of war, with advancing militaries, or as they are approaching one another in battle. It's, it's a bloody, violent word. And yet, at the very beginning, when he says everything is good, and then he creates man, he says man is very good, he gives then man the, the capacity and the command to act like a king and prepare for battle. Now, I'm bringing this up because this raises a question. Why, if everything is good, would we be called very good? Is it then necessary to have a prince who's capable of going to war? At the very beginning... Everything's good. Man your battle stations. Why is that happening? Why is God telling man and woman to subdue anything if it's all very good? You subdue an enemy, you don't subdue your yard or leaky faucet. You don't subdue your kids, you subdue their threats. You subdue an enemy. And there's a lingering, threatening tone to this phrase, is there danger already in creation? Danger that is now coming towards Adam and Eve, who they'll be named later, one coming towards this creation. Well, whatever it is, Moses is caused to write for us. Man is called to subdue and conquer the kingdom that God has given him even in the midst of an invasion. Now we'll see in a couple of weeks that there is a threat. And if mankind does not subdue this coming threat, it will lead to his own death. But in the midst of this, you and I are given the command by God to own and to operate within the world. Now we look around this and we see bad bosses, or we see unjust operators, or we see people who exploit others or even exploit the universe that God has given us. And I just need to remember that is today, and this this text in Genesis 1 is when everything was good. We'll certainly get to what makes today different than then, but you and I are regularly called in our own lives to subdue the earth, to have command over what God has given us, whether that's in a relationship God has called you to cultivate that to the glory of God. Whether that's you working in some kind of role, that means you go to work even in the midst of his harshness and hardness, aiming to glorify God and having command over your spiritual pursuit of him, or even if it feels like you were just overwhelmed by the unceasing what feels like wrath of the earth. Know that in the beginning when things were good, God has called you to push back against that guard or against that army, to push back against that darkness. And in the New Testament we see where God has given us the the ability and authority to put on the armor of God. Frankly, people get really caught up in what is the sword, what is the belt, what is the shield? Putting on the armor of God, that's language from Joshua, that means put on Christ and fight with his intensity. Anyway, side comment. So that was the second thing. God has given us the command to rule over the earth and the universe. But third For us, mankind was made to reflect God's attributes. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means we're to reflect God's attributes. Genesis teaches us that being in the image of God means that we bear certain attributes of God. These are called the uh, communicable, 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 and I can't spell it, the communicable attributes of God instead of the incommunicable attributes of God. So we're to bear things like his faithfulness, his love, His mercy, we, you and I can't, you know, we can't bear His omniscience, but we're to bear certain things and reflect certain attributes of God. And let me give you an example of that. Turn to Genesis 5. Uh, we were just in Genesis 2, or I was just in Genesis 2. Turn to Genesis 5, and we'll see just briefly here, Genesis 5, verses 1 through 3, where we're to reflect God's attributes. It begins, Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, two things from this pretty incredible passage. The language of our being created in the likeness of God, and then the language of Seth, Adam's son, being created in the image and the likeness of him, meaning Adam. What do we learn from that? It's clear that we can learn a couple of things here. It is clear that by this analogy, that as Seth was in the likeness and image of Adam, he was also in the likeness and image of God. However, we recognize that, that chapter 5 comes after chapter 4 and chapter 3, and chapter 3 is when everything goes awry. So Seth here is created both in the image of God, in his value, and worth, and dignity, and glory, but also, he's also now made in the image of Adam. Seth is made in the image of Adam, which means he has a fallenness to him while uh, an essence of God's imprint of his glory on him. And so the attributes here are not necessarily spelled out for us in so many words, but there are indications, especially as we pair Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 together, what it means to bear certain attributes of God. Let me just mention three of these. Uh, The first one, when we think about what does it mean to reflect God's attributes, the first one is, it is apparent from Genesis 1 that as God is rational, so we are rational. This is implicit, implicit from Genesis 1 verse 1 through Genesis 1 through 25. When God is seen to be rational, that is, he has intelligence, he has a will, He can form plans, and he executes them. He's rational. Man, too, is endowed with this rationality, unlike anything else, with knowledge, with understanding. And that is seen in Adam's naming of the animals. And in Genesis 2, verses 19 and 20, where Adam names the animals, it's not only an exercise of rule that I just mentioned before, but it's also an exercise of rationality, understanding, as Adam gives appropriate names to various animals. And this is confirmed in the New Testament teaching. For us, when we see this played out a little bit fuller in its teaching about salvation as it comes to believers, in Colossians chapter 3 verses 9 through 10, you don't have to turn there, but in Colossians chapter 3 verses 9 through 10, Paul indicates that the aspect of the image is restored in redemption. Listen to what Paul says, "...do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." So we see here that man was made distinct in our rationality. And part of that means that once we give our lives over to Christ or become united to him in the person of Jesus, there is actually a a reformation of the heart of rationality there where we start to see things more clearly. We see that we have an approach to sin instead of righteousness. And we we see that God has implanted his law on our hearts in such a way that we want to live for his glory. You see how there was something good in the beginning where Adam originally was able, I just got thrown off because I said Adam and looked right at Adam, and now I don't know what I'm talking about right now, but where Adam was given a task and he showed how rational he was by naming animals. And we see through the rest of the scripture that everyone acts irrationally. You and I, what are we good at? Acting irrationally. But what Christ does, what God does in Christ for us in summoning us to himself, is he starts regenerating our hearts to where we now see sin for what it is, and we hate it. We now, see, we now see holiness and righteousness for what it is, and we want it so bad we want to pursue it. We see what it feels like and means like to be around other Christian people, and we want to go there as much as we can. So there is an imprint of rationality even within the image of man. Second, another attribute of God which man shares is that God is personal. So also man is personal. It's beyond exciting. <laughs> I think in Genesis uh, 1.26 that God says, Let us make man in our image, and according to our likeness, let them rule. It's interesting phrasing. It goes on in verse 27. God says, or Moses says, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him male and female he created them. It seems that God's creating of man as male and female is reflective of the fact that God is personal. As God, the triune God, is eternally in personal fellowship with one another, so also man is created as a personal male and then female, where they are complementary towards one another. They are made for one another. We're designed for one another as an, as an offshoot or a reflection of where we see the three persons of the Trinity not lacking anything around them, but in their desire they create man and woman. And this stresses the personalness of ourselves as human beings as a part of God's image. By the way, this, has, this too has massive implications for us in our day and age. All sorts of things. Everywhere from the role, our role within relationships that God has given us, especially within marriage and and even our role within relationships towards one another in the church and even, you think of more contemporary or controversial levels, what it means to think biblically about what people act and call and pursue in what is called homosexuality or transsexuality. For example, homosexuality is actually a denial of image-bearing humanity as intended by God because it refuses to appreciate and exalt the reality that God has uniquely given male and female to be complements of one another, to be the completion of one another. And it's not to be desired nor acted out in male-to-male or female-to-female relationships, ultimately. That personalness of fellowship experienced by God would be mirrored And it is mirrored in Genesis 1 in male-female marital relationships. We'll see that again in chapter 2 of this. It is mutual self-giving. And this is where we see stuff of today rightly being grounded theologically, biblically, practically in the truth of what is taught to us in Genesis 1 and 2. This is where you can see things starting unraveling, and then hopefully being brought back together in a relationship of Christ. So you and I look around us, and we'll be accused of, you don't like me because I'm acting different than you. And we just go, no, I think you're missing it. God made us to be complementary of another who he has also made, not in the same way. This is also true of the transsexual debate today, but it goes a little bit deeper. The transsexual today... uh, beyond the obvious, examined, biological implications of men being men and women being women, it is, it is also a denial of not only the personalness of our reflecting God, but also the, the kindness or the likeness, in that there's people who are seeking to be the same kind as someone else, even to the point of mutilation of their own bodies or identifying as something else. Remember when he created animals and other things, he said he made them in their own kind. And then when he made man and woman, he made them in the image of God. So if we're trying to strip away of how God has made us in his own image, then what we're ultimately not only denying is how he has made us, but we're also pursuing how he has made everything else in its own kind. You see the you see the deception there of like, we're just pursuing who I really feel like. And the reality is that God in his good grace knew exactly what he was doing when he made you. Now I recognize that there are going to be some of you here who struggle with that reality or internally you are hurting because of what your view of that reality is. And I just want to encourage you as much as I can. And I can't, I can't do everything. I can't encourage you in every way. Other people are very good at that as well. But I, I want you to, to try... And all of us do this in, in every which way of our relationships and marriage. Try to approach the word as true and say, God, help me to fight my flesh and see how good you want me to be. See how right you want me to be according to your word. And, and everyone, and if you find yourself in one of these boxes, you are not strange as what the world will want to call you strange. Everyone will pursue what the Bible calls fleshly or sinful in a variety of ways. And what we are called to do continually is to go to God's truth and say, I am not what I am made to be, and I want you to remake me into the likeness of your son. And we see that truly played out here, even in this small passage. The third thing, the third attribute that we are reflecting God in, in our own image. We also learn in this passage that God is moral, so also is man. In Genesis 1, verse 31, God pronounces everything that he has made to be very good, and it's clear that he is acting in righteousness in all that he does. Man, too, is endowed with righteousness and holiness in the beginning, and he is given things that he is to do. In Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, he has been given things to do and to not do as he could act righteously. He has been given things, do this, don't do that, and pursue righteousness in the meantime. His heart is to be given over to God in his worship and in his ways. He's to possess holiness. And again, in the New Testament, Paul talks about this recreation in Christ in moral terms. You and I look at this and go, okay, man was made moral, and I look around us, and I go, you're not very moral, you're not very moral. And if you look at me, you're going, you're not very moral. And what Paul does is he says, come back to what God has been doing from the beginning, redeeming a bride for himself, and recognize what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 24, put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Remember how good it was, how bad we made it, and how good Christ restores it to us. And so God recreates us in Christ and restores that original righteousness and moral pursuit towards holiness, which we were created to do from the beginning. Now, there is a fourth way that we image God, or there is a fourth way that we were made in the image of God, and this is that we were made sacred Or hallowed. I hesitate at using the word holy, but we were made sacred. He made us, He said who we were, and then, like others, He blessed us. In this passage, not only do we see that man is distinct from the animal creation, that he has the capacity to rule, that he's a bearer of certain attributes of the Lord, um, but also he is sacred and hallowed. Look at, uh, turn back to Genesis 9, verse 6. Sorry, this is scattered. But Genesis 9, verse 6. Actually, I'll, I'll start in verse 5. Genesis 9, verse 6. You'll, you'll see this. In Genesis 9, verse 6, we're taught that man's life is sacred because of the image of God in him, so man must be treated as in this, in this way. Look at Genesis 9, verse 5, and then 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And in verse 6, another poem. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall be shall whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Notice the argumentation here that, that Moses still plays out even in Genesis 9 around the wickedness of man, in this passage we're told that it is precisely because man is created in God's image that capital punishment, which is what this is talking about, that capital punishment is required for capital crimes. Because man is made in the image of God, capital punishment is required for capital crimes. Basically, God is saying to Noah that I take life so seriously that if you unlawfully take the life of another human being, you must forfeit your own life in order to uphold the sacredness of human life, the sanctity of life, the purity and holiness of life. And I want you to note that the argument of the Lord to Noah is not capital punishment, is a deterrent to crime. His argument is capital punishment is necessary for upholding God's standard of the value of life. And so when you start saying that human life is not worth another life, you are inherently devaluing human life. And human life, from the beginning, is seen as sacred and precious and good and worth another man's life if it was taken wrongly. Now, there have been some theologians uh, that have said, uh, especially in kind of a neo-Orthodox school, they they would say that the image of God was completely lost in the fall. So there are things at the beginning, and then there's kind of a different category of, of the value of life ever since the fall. But Genesis 9, verse 6, occurs after Genesis 3, where the fall occurs. And God is still speaking to Noah about having the same respect of human life that he had at the beginning. It happens after the fall. So the image is not completely lost. Though, though we can look around and see that it's a little bit eroded. Therefore, we see in the command not only adequate basis for an establishment of basic human rights, but also mutual respect. And this is, this is frankly, this was heightened in the news a month and a half ago or a month ago about you know people all of a sudden are saying, now is the time for the church to step up as the overturning of a precedent was set. But in reality, this is what the church has been fighting for from the very beginning. It was, not, it was not rare for church people in the 100s to secretly capture a baby that was thrown over the city walls because it wanted to be aborted. Yet it was the Christians who would say, we'll take it. It's the, it's the Christians who have an ethic of caring for people as they grow older that is, that is very different than all pagan cultures. And, and so this is a pursuit that has been there from the beginning. And it's not just because you and I have figured ways to be really nice. We're not nice. We're sinful people. But we, we are given commands by God to see you in the value of how he sees you. And if he sees you with intrinsic value and a, and a standard of our respect, then, then we go to anyone and just say, because you are an image bearer, uh, I will treat you more delicately than a tree or a cow when it's ready to be slaughtered. It sounds weird to put it in that mind, but yes, that's why we treat humans differently than everything else. Fifthly and lastly, there's a final way that I want to bring your attention to on on how mankind is in the image of God. Mankind was made with the Spirit. Mankind was made with the Spirit. And finally, one last thing here. Mankind was made with the Spirit. The image of God means that we are endowed with an immortal spiritual aspect to our being. We are endowed with an immortal spiritual aspect to our being. Turn, finally, with me to uh, Genesis chapter 2. So go a little bit further, but beyond our passage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. We're endowed with the Spirit. We're told that we have a spiritual aspect to our being. It says in Genesis 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. Adam is endowed here with what we call, what the Bible calls a soul or a heart or a spirit. He has an aspect to his being which is personal and spiritual and for our case, immortal, meaning we will go on forever. It will go on and on, and that is part of the image of God. We think of things like death, and we see it as the end of life. For So I'm pointing down here because this is where caskets go. And, and it's oftentimes to, for people to say at a funeral, you know, Bob maybe passed away in front of us, and they say, you know, Bob's not really here today. And in reality, the Christian perspective is Bob is really here. That is his body, even though his soul, Lord willing, is with Christ. And there will be a time where those two will be united. And we can have hope in what seems like such a miraculous impossibility that a body and soul can be separated and then united because we are the only parts of creation that have a soul. It will go on and on because it's a part of the image of God. Man goes on forever, personal, self-conscious, in knowledge and in thought and in action. And that is why it is so important for us to truly understand the gospel because it has eternal effects on our souls. For if we deny that God, for if we deny God in this life, that immortal, self-conscious aspect to our being does not cease to exist. It must go on eternally, apart from God, eternally becoming less human, but never being extinguished altogether. And that is that is the fate that all of us have in front of us. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, one of those And I don't mean to downplay anyone's, you know, happy pursuit and how they have their home. What makes you different than a dog? And I'm like kind of a dog guy. I always tell people I'm not a dog guy, but then Brooke always says you're actually a dog guy. I'll get on the ground and play with the dog. I'll get up and feed it and everything else. But in reality, what makes us different than the beasts of the field is that our souls will go on forever. Now to conclude, a helpful way, I think, for us to think about Genesis 1 and 2 is to see what we were made to be and what we are, and God willing, what we will be remade to be. I would imagine all of you have moved a couple of times in your life, maybe once or twice or ten, so... You families in the military, this is one of your stops on what seems like an infinity stop in your life. One of, the, one of the terrible things about moving is that stuff just breaks every time you move. When we moved to Albuquerque, we had these nice plates that we were given when we were married, because what marriage would be complete without a bunch of nice plates that you never use? So we carried these things from Enid or from Edmund to Albuquerque, and, and I, could, I could physically hear this man carry this box. And, he, and with two inches, he dropped the box on a table, and I thought, Everything just smashed in there. (laughs) Like, thank you for nothing. But uh, these plates smashed. Then, to carry the carry the weight forward, when we moved from Albuquerque to Enid, I thought, man, I'm going to take very good care of some of the things that Brooke and I cherish and hold together. Which, if you've ever gotten married, there's there's a lot of things that happen when you get married around the ceremony time. There's possibly a rehearsal. When you practice getting married? There's possibly a rehearsal dinner where, and then everyone acts insane on the wedding day, me included. And then there's a ceremony, and what really completes a ceremony from happening? Like 45 hours of taking pictures right after the wedding. But you have those pictures forever. You have them up on a wall, you have them on a desk. Whenever you're reminded that, man, I'm kind of sad, it's like, there's my wife. I'm not so sad after all. And so you carry this precious photo with you all over the country, and you carry it from Albuquerque all the way to Enid and you two drop a box and your marriage shatters with glass everywhere and it's not an omen but it hurts because that photo of you and your spouse is an image of something that truly happened of of something truly glorious that is there when when you and I look at mankind in the beginning Genesis one and two we we are like a we are like a picture display of God's glory everywhere we go now the reality is. Is that you and I are very much broken pictures. We, we do not hold, we do not hold the, the beauty of what was once designed to hold. You and I might feel very broken up, or smashed together, or we are <laughs> something that has been pieced together and re-pieced together. And what we see as the story of Scripture unfolds is that yes, in the beginning, God made mankind in His image, and for the rest of Scripture, He spends a delicate purposeful, actionable amount of time and energy to recapture that image for the glory of himself. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we come to you today thankful that you have made us of how we are, and we pray that we would pursue every bit of what that means. God, we ask that we would be reflectors of your glory and your goodness. We pray that we would be meditative on what it means to have dominion over what you've given us, circumstantially to have dominion over. We pray that you would protect us from reaching for something that isn't or being lazy and not going for something that is. Oh Lord, we pray that you would turn our affection to you as we remember and reflect on in the beginning, it was very good, and may it come to pass again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.